the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We are glad to have you with us today. James Blind is producing and engineering today's program. Later in the second hour, we're going to hear from Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars. His book is Wrath, America Enraged. And I think you can probably... See where that's going. He'll join us in the second hour of today's program. Well, I have to tell you before I get into anything else, yesterday was my sweet mom's 91st birthday, and we spent the weekend uh, celebrating her. And uh, I just wanted to say what a tremendous gift she is to our family. As you may know, she lives with my husband and me, and we're approaching 10, 15, 18 years. I'm not quite sure how many years that has been the case. At 91, I find it's important to remind her on a regular basis that her life still has value as her capacity declines. I mean, she's still able to do most of what she does for herself, but she used to be a seamstress. She used to be a gardener. She was very active. She did a lot of things with her hands, and she's not able to do many of those things. She used to sew Pretty much all of the clothing that my sister and I wore, she would sew outfits for every holiday occasion. My sister and I would have matching dresses. My brother would have an outfit that went along with it. She was just an industrious woman, and she doesn't have the ability to do any of that. And my concern has been when those um, abilities decline, you start to question, what is my value? So in addition to celebrating her with high tea on Saturday and a special dinner last night, I had an opportunity to sit at her bedside and review for her uh, how her life has um, still has value, how she has uh, invested in eternal things that have significance far beyond, you know, what a certificate or a trophy might indicate. And it was such a delight to me to be able to rehearse those things in my own mind And to say them out loud to her, that her life has had value, it's had eternal consequence, that while her name has never appeared in the Oregonian, she's never been given a a citation of any kind, there's no medal of honor that she's been given, the, the value and the weight of what she has done in raising her family and devoting herself to training us up in the way that we should go is far beyond anything else I can think of, of value in this life. So it was such a delight to me to be able to just rehearse that with her. I went to Proverbs 31 and I read, and what does it start at verse 10? I read through the, the various lines about, um, you know, a, a wife of this quality who can find and literally every single line in that uh, portion of scripture, I could relate to my mother and how she conducted herself as a wife and a mother and a follower of Jesus. So it was really, really fun for me. It was also the 27th anniversary of um, our kidney uh, exchange. Well, it wasn't exactly an exchange, but it was 27 years ago on her birthday, December 7th, uh, 13th, rather, 
uh, that I donated a kidney to my mother, and they say they probably last 15 years on average. Well, 27 years, that's where we are at this point. She's 91, still doing great. She, uh, for the most part, cooks her own meals. She does her own laundry. She maintains her household with some help. And it is such an honor and a challenge. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's a challenge, but it is such an honor to serve her in these latter years and to uh, have the opportunity to encourage her and to remind her of her value. And, you know, during this holiday season, especially if you have parents or grandparents who are aging, take the time to sit down and say to them what's in your heart about how you value them and love them and cherish them and, and the gift that they have been to you in the past and continue to be uh, in the present. Um, the look on her face was, for me, absolutely priceless as uh, I went through all of the things that um, she has meant to me and to my siblings and to others outside of our family. I also posted a picture of her on Facebook, on the Georgine Rice Show page and my personal page. And there were hundreds of people who offered birthday greetings to my mother. She was shocked. How, how do these people, how, what motivates them to want to wish me a happy birthday? And some of the kind things that many of you said just melted her heart. So I wanted to thank those of you who uh, did so. If you'd like to see my mom and what I wrote in tribute to her, you'll find that on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page as well as my personal page as well. But I did want to say thank you to those of you who did wish her a happy birthday, and uh, she certainly had one. So there you have it. Well, we want to take a look at some of the news. In fact, we'll wind our way through some news stories uh, through uh, throughout the day. But also want to remind you, in our second hour, we'll talk with Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars, as he takes a look at why we are so angry and enraged. His book is simply titled Wrath. Uh, want to remind you that w- you still have time, if you would like to uh, be considered to win the... Um, the opportunity to have your mortgage paid for an entire year. Now, that includes rent as well. If you are a renter, uh, we want to make sure that you sign up for the Christmas Mortgage Miracle. You still have time. You can enter once per day now through Friday, December 17th. If you haven't done so up to this point, you still have an opportunity uh, to enter to win the Christmas Mortgage Miracle from KPDQ and Osteo Strong PDX. You can click on the Christmas Mortgage Miracle banner on the homepage at kpdq.com for more information um, about that. So it's kind of an exciting opportunity uh, for you. All right, taking a look at some of the day's news, the Oregon legislature held a special session to vote on a number of bills today, including one to prevent thousands of evictions in Oregon in the upcoming winter months. So one of the bills passed was Senate Bill 891. It extends the safe harbor period for tenants who've applied for rental assistance and also provides support for the rental assistance program. It was passed by the House and the Senate and will be signed by the governor. Well, since the start of the pandemic, This is a quote from Senator uh, Casey Jama, chair of the Senate Housing Committee and a lead proponent of Senate Bill 891. Our state has been committed to keeping Oregonians in their homes during this crisis by launching mortgage and rental assistance programs and enacting foreclosure and eviction protections. Today, we passed Senate Bill 891 to prevent evictions to tenants who are waiting for assistance, as well as allowing more tenants to apply for assistance and ensuring landlords are fully paid. Now, that's the other side of the coin, and that is that landlords not uh, be forced to sacrifice. They, too, have 
um, bills to be paid. Well, all safe harbors will expire on October 1st, 2022, according to the new bill. Well, Senate Bill 5561 was also passed. Again, we're talking about the special session of the Oregon legislature. Um, Senate Bill 5561 um, is a budget reallocation bill. It moves millions of dollars to help support the rental assistance program. $100 million in additional uh, emergency rental assistance to ensure low-income tenants have access to housing in the winter. And $100 million to support partnerships with existing programs as Oregon transitions from large-scale pandemic-related emergency rental assistance to long-term locally delivered eviction prevention services. An additional $10 million dollars to the landlord guarantee fund to reimburse landlords for non-payment of rent and other fees incurred during the safe harbor period and five million dollars to speed up the delivery of federal funds now senate bill 5561 also allocates 18 million dollars to support afghan refugees oregon is preparing to take 1200 refugees in the next year which reads to me a tremendous opportunity for the church just a little side note and this money will help refugees with housing, education, legal aid, job training, uh, culturally specific support as they come to Oregon. So they are coming. And uh, I would imagine there will be lots of opportunities for Oregonians, in particular Oregonians of faith, to reach out to and minister to these new neighbors. Um, Representative uh, Khan Fan said, I have been uh, heartened these last few months to see support from Oregonians across the state willing to step up, offering what they can do to Respond to this humanitarian crisis. We have a moral responsibility to provide safety and welcome to our Afghan allies and families who are joining our communities. Well, this $18 million package will develop a collaboration with state agencies and community partners, and it includes $5.3 million to support the Department of, he- of Human Services Emergency Management Union. Uh, $3.7 million to bolster case management and community outreach, $6 million for housing assistance, and $2.9 million for legal services, according to the Associated Press. Tucked into that bill was also $2 million in funding for gun violence prevention in East County. That money will go to help the city of Gresham and local community partners to create the East Metro Outreach Prevention and Intervention Program, which is going to address rising youth violence and improve public safety. I don't uh, quite know all the details on that yet, but it was passed in the legislature today in that special session. More on that when we return in just a moment. I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and yeah, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, you can check out all things Christmas here in Portland at uh, the kpdq.com page, it runs through Christmas Eve. It's a great resource for links de- uh, dedicated to shopping local from small independent merchants to cool Christmas pop-up shops, holiday markets, and more. And beautiful Christmas light displays, all kinds of things to do with the family or a special date night all season long. And if we've uh, missed something, let us know and we'll add it. Click on the All Things Christmas in Portland page at kpdq. We're talking about the special session of the legislature, which was called by the governor. Um, In fact, the governor says, um, I should say the House Speaker says of this uh, special session, I called for this session months ago because we had to honor our commitment to keep Oregonians housed during the pandemic. Well, among the uh, uh, other pieces of legislation considered and passed by the Oregon legislature was drought relief in response to the impact of recent heat um, dome, you might recall. Wildfire smoke and record drought have had a 
uh, on farming communities. Senate Bill 5561 includes a $100 million drought relief package. There's the illegal cannabis enforcement law in 5561 Senate Bill. It was approved uh, $25 million to prevent all illegal operations and address the humanitarian crisis impacting workers at these sites. Senate Bill 893 expanded the scope of the illegal marijuana market enforcement grant program at the Criminal Justice Commission to include funding for community-based organizations to address the humanitarian crisis. Now, we were told if we passed legislation legalizing marijuana, then we wouldn't have a problem. And now we're passing legislation because there's a growing problem. There's the, uh, I mentioned the Afghan refugee support, the affordable housing and homeless support, Oregon mass timber modular housing prototype and gun violence prevention, all taken up by the legislature in the special session held in Salem earlier today. Meanwhile, in Washington, the Senate is inching closer to raising the debt ceiling by $2.5 trillion after a party line procedural vote. No surprise there. Mitch McConnell backed the procedural trick. It allows the Democrats to raise the debt ceiling without GOP votes. Well, Congress came one step closer to finally raising that debt ceiling today when the Senate approved this procedural vote 50 to 49 on a bill to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, the vote puts the chamber on path to uh, pass the bill. Well, this evening, uh, then the House of Representatives is expected to quickly expected rather to quickly sync up with the Senate, sending that same bill to the president's desk and averting the potential default after months of brinksmanship. But it will be done along party lines. Well, last week, according to Senate Majority Leader Chuck uh, Schumer, we advanced bipartisan legislation that will enable this chamber to address the debt ceiling on a fast track basis. But it won't do so, I add. On a bipartisan basis, the Senate will act Tuesday to prevent default, he went on to say. Well, Schumer said today the debt ceiling increase is expected to last until 2023. Well, nearly all Senate Republicans earlier this year said that they would vote against any debt ceiling increase in protest of the Democrats plan to spend trillions of dollars along party lines. Republicans insisted that the Democrats use budget reconciliation to raise the debt limit, which is the process they used to advance their massive COVID-19 spending bill earlier this year and are using again for social spending now. But Democrats, led by the Senate Majority Leader Schumer, refused to use that process. It led to a standoff that uh, took place this fall between the Republicans and the Democrats. It took the U.S. just days away from defaulting on its debts and causing an economic catastrophe. But Senate Majority Leader, I should say Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, he agreed to a temporary hike in the debt limit to that prevented default until December. Well, it's now December. He emphasized that Democrats shouldn't count on the GOP to raise the debt ceiling again, but still angered some in his party who saw the move as caving to the Democrats. Then, as the U.S. approached a projected default date again this month, McConnell and Schumer cut a deal that would allow Republicans to all vote against raising the debt ceiling without Democrats using reconciliation. They slipped language in a must-pass bill to prevent Medicare cuts that allowed the Senate on a one-time basis to raise the debt ceiling via a simple majority threshold rather than the 60-vote threshold it needed to clear on most bills. Well, this allows the Democrats to use their 50 votes plus Vice President Harris as a tiebreaker to pass the bill without involving a votorama or the other uh, procedural hurdles associated with reconciliation, which Republicans were going to help uh, speed along anyway. But some in the GOP were pretty unhappy with McConnell over the deal. They wanted to keep fighting to either force the Democrats to make fiscal concessions to raise the debt ceiling or to do it on their own with reconciliation. Well, the divided House may or may not stand in the Senate. 
Stephen Moore wrote a piece on the greatest financial swindle of all time, referring to the debt ceiling, and reminds us of 1994 when he writes, one of the most popular provisions of the 1994 contract with America was a rule requiring Congress to live by the same laws that families and businesses are subject to. So why doesn't Congress live by the financial and accounting standards required for the rest of us? That's a pretty big question. I guess the answer is in part because they don't have to. I'm speaking of the multi-million dollar Build Back Better law, a giant financial masquerade. No one knows what it costs. Now that the Democrats in Congress who are bent on passing it seem to care. That may be because of the House Budget Committee chairman has pronounced we can pay for whatever we want to pay for. You can print the money. You can deprive other programs. They can just do what they want. Whereas you and I, average Americans and businesses, don't have that latitude. Uh, the the uh, bookkeeping gambits in this bill are so brazen that it's hard to believe that they think they can get away with it. But the sad uh, fact is they can and they will. One of the tricks is to um, hide the actual cost by counting 10 years of revenue to pay for the five years of new programs. But amazingly, even with this sleight of hand, they can't make the numbers add up. They just simply say it's paid for whether or not. You know, you try to add them up. Another is to assume that Congress can pass the most significant increase in U.S. history and it won't hurt the economy. Well, the Congressional Budget Office poked its head in the midst of all of this at the request of some Senate Republicans. They have a score and they have to score whatever Congress sends their way. So it shows massive deficits in the first five years of the Build Back Better um, broker bill. And then magically, the next five years generate significant surpluses. Well, is there any human being on the planet who believes this um, these surpluses will emerge or that these new entitlement programs will disappear? Well, the accounting gimmick suggests that, well, they'll just sort of dissipate when, in fact, the hope is among supporters that it will live on in my perspective, infamy. Hmm. Well, the producer uh, price index jumped 9.6% in November compared to the same month last year, the highest year-over-year increase since record-keeping began back in 2010. Uh, The increase, um, the PPI increased by 0.8% during the month of November of this year. Prices still climbed 6.9% when excluding food and energy costs, much higher if you include them, to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, the PPI tracks changes in the sale price of domestically produced goods and is a key gauge of inflation. Meanwhile, consumer prices rose 6.2% in October compared with the previous year, the highest increase in over 30 years. We'll talk about gas prices. They dropped for the fifth consecutive week with the holiday travel season upon us, but remains above $3 a gallon. I'll explain when we come back. They're looking at Michigan, Indiana, and Alabama. They saw the biggest weekly decreases, but what about the rest of us? We'll talk about it in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in that moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, want to let you know about an opportunity to, well, enjoy some great music for King and Country live stream and discount. KPDQ club members, we want to let you know now through the 19th at noon, you have a great opportunity to hear them with their a Drummer Boy Christmas tour with a sold out concert this Sunday at the Ryman in Nashville. 
Uh, you can watch the live stream of the show from home and get a special member listener discount on the ticket. Tickets are nineteen ninety nine, and an entire household can watch with one purchase. Plus, KPDQE Club members will enjoy a $5 discount. If you aren't already a member of our Loyal Listeners Club, you can join today. You can get the details and your ticket to this King and Country live stream at kpdq.com. Again, that's coming up. Um, just in the next few days, now through the 19th at noon, discount for the KPDQ club members for King and Country. Well, as I mentioned, the national average price for a gallon of regular gasoline dropped for the fifth consecutive week. That provides some relief for uh, drivers with the busy holiday travel season. Prices at the pump tumbled 2.4 cents from a week ago. That pushes the average to about $3.32 per gallon. That's the average, much higher here on the left coast. That's according to Gas Buddy. It's uh, compiled from price reports covering about 150,000 gas stations across the country. Well, compared to a month ago, the national average is down nine cents. However, it's still a dollar 18 cents per gallon higher than a year ago. So I guess you take your excitement where you can find it. Well, recently, though, prices at the pump have declined in nearly every city nationwide. That's according to Gas Buddy's head of petroleum analysis. With the price of crude oil remaining some $13 per barrel below its 2021 peak, we have continued to see gas prices decline in nearly every city coast to coast, a trend that will likely continue into yet another week. A cent, two cents, three cents, we don't really know. Well, natural gas prices are poised to skyrocket this winter, raising the heating bills of many Americans by 30 percent. Households that use natural gas as their primary source of warmth will be laying out about $746 by early 2022. That's compared to 573 last winter. So that's a pretty significant increase. And that figure only applies to its... um, Normally cold season, the National Weather Service is predicting a chillier than usual winter. Well, other forms of energy, electricity, propane, heating oil, we're on heating oil, are also increasing, but not as high as natural gas. Well, according to the Energy Information Administration, I should say, on average, nearly half of households that heat primarily with natural gas will spend 30 percent more than they did last winter. Forty one percent of households that heat primarily with electricity will spend six percent more. Five percent of households that primarily use propane will spend 54 percent more. And 4% of households that heat mostly with the heating oil will spend 43% more. We forecast that the inventories of natural gas are 4.8% below the five-year average, according to um, researchers. Lower U.S. Uh, inventories could contribute to more natural gas price volatility, particularly in any area experiencing a severe cold snap. Now, keep in mind, it was just months ago that we were energy independent. Not the case today. Hmm. Well, in a 6-3 vote, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear an emergency request brought by healthcare workers in New York objecting to that state's vaccine mandate for medical workers that intentionally excludes religious exemptions. Now, that's the second emergency request rejected by the court. Well, back in October, the justices rejected hearing a lawsuit brought by healthcare workers in Maine, and they sought religious exemption to their state's vaccine mandate. Well, what what's the explanation? Well, similar to the main case, the healthcare workers in New York, they sought exemption from the COVID vaccine mandate based on their religious objection to abortion. Now, the suit contended that abortive derived fetal cell lines were used in developing the vaccines. Now, I haven't been able to research and confirm if that is the case. 
Um, but that's what they were alleging in the lawsuit. For its part, the state of New York claimed that the COVID vaccines themselves do not contain aborted fetal t- cells, but also acknowledged that HEC-293 cells, which are currently grown in a laboratory and are thousands of generations removed from the cells collected from a fetus in 1973, were in fact used in testing during the research and development phase of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Now, the state also argued that use of fetal cell lines for testing is common, including for the rubella vaccination, which New York's healthcare workers are already required to take. Now, furthermore, New York observed that Catholic leaders, including Pope Francis, have given their approval for receiving COVID vaccines. Writing for the court's three dissenting members, Justice Neil Gorsuch not only disagreed with the majority's rejection of the case, but further noted that he would have ruled against the state. He contended that New York's action should clear animus toward religion. Even if one, and I'm quoting, even if one were to read the state's actions as something other than signs of animus, Gorsuch stated, they leave little doubt that the revised mandate was specifically directed at the applicant's unorthodox religious beliefs and practices, end quote. Now, he also highlighted the fact that several other states have been able to meet COVID-19 public health goals without coercing religious objectors to accept the vaccine. End quote. Well, the justice is uh, the justice rather wasn't done. A warning of the nature of political leaders to abuse emergencies for the collective good. He alluded to wars. Pandemics often produce demanding new social rules uh, aimed at protecting collective interests. And with those rules can come fear and anger at individuals unable to confront conform rather for religious reasons. Gorsuch also blasted the majority for failing to address the issue, writing, we should know the costs that come when this court stands silent as majorities invade the constitutional rights of the unpopular and unorthodox, end quote. But it's not all bad news when it comes to challenges to COVID vaccine mandates. Missouri's Attorney General Eric Schmidt recently announced the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals denied the Department of Justice's motion to stay pending appeals in our lawsuit against the vaccine mandate on health care workers, meaning our injunction will stay in place, end quote. Well, also, thanks to shortages of nurses and other workers, as well as contained um, or rather continued court setbacks for Biden's mandate, many big hospital systems have dropped vaccine mandates. They simply can't afford to implement them. Not that long ago, nearly a third of healthcare workers remained unvaccinated. And finally, while the court has once again dodged weighing in on religious exemptions in relation to these vaccine mandates, it seems that at some point the court will eventually be forced to take up one of these cases. If uh, it's apparent that some states uh, leaders will continue uh, to push against religious liberty rights at any opportunity that arises. And this is just another of those opportunities that has arisen. Well, we are in a season in which we're all anticipating coming together as uh, church families or immediate families or extended families or families of choice to celebrate Christmas. But as we um, are preparing to do just that during this season, typically marked by festivity and joy, it will be a much more difficult time of mourning and rebuilding for parts of the Midwest and the South after a devastating cluster of tornadoes ripped through numerous towns over the weekend. Kentucky was hit the hardest with at least 70 people confirmed dead in the state, 105 still unaccounted for there. And those numbers may have adjusted since last I I checked, as well as entire towns like Mayfield and Dawson Springs almost completely leveled. An additional 14 people have been killed across Illinois, Tennessee, Arkansas and Missouri. 
Samaritan's Purse is currently mobilizing resources and volunteers to help aid the victims of these terrible storms. And if you're able, you might want to consider donating to that relief effort. Now, there are lots of organizations that you can consider, but... If you can give to one that has a connection with your Christian faith, that's all the better because they bring that message and the gospel with it. Samaritan's Purse is also organizing volunteer opportunities, so consider giving your time if possible. As Samaritan's Purse president and CEO Franklin Graham said, and I'm quoting, the greatest thing we can do right now is pray. And don't underestimate the value of praying. It's not a tangible gift that you're giving, but you have access to and are making an appeal to the Lord of the universe. Pray for the people that have lost everything. These are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children that have lost their homes, uh, lost their lives, lost their property. They need our prayers. And um, we would encourage you to do that as well as consider some uh, opportunities to give tangibly to those who are in dire straits uh, as the holiday approaches. Well, the Biden administration's spending bill proposed cuts to hospital funding. It's drawing scrutiny. We'll talk more about that when we return in just a moment. We'll also talk about a CNN producer who once decried growing news stories of child abuse cases in an old tweet has himself been accused of just that. CNN has a number of uh, challenges that they're facing. We'll get into that and much more in just a few moments. Also want to remind you, coming up in our second hour, we'll uh, hear from Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars. He is the author of Wrath, America Enraged. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, coming up in our second hour, we'll hear uh, from the president of the National Association of Scholars. His book is titled Wrath, America Enraged. Peter Wood will be our guest. Well, we're continuing to take a look at some of the day's news, including the uh, spending bill that the president has proposed, cuts to hospital funding, and it's drawing some Scrutiny. Republican Florida Senator Rick Scott and other critics are pushing back on a portion of the president's Build Back Better Act that would cut hospital funding across predominantly uh, right leaning states, according to a report Monday. So is it politically inspired or is it just a coincidence? Well, the House version of the bill includes a provision that would cut disproportionate share hospital payments across 12 states that haven't expanded Medicaid coverage. Well, the payments support hospitals that serve large numbers of patients who utilize Medicaid or are uninsured. Well, it's not clear if the provision will be included in the uh, Senate's version of Build Back Better. Uh, Scott, a major critic of the proposal, told The Washington Times it would hurt low income families as part of the same legislation that would restore tax deductions for the wealthy blue state residents. Well, the president and other proponents of health care provisions included in Build Back Better argue it will expand medical coverage for the uninsured. The White House says the plan is the biggest expansion of affordable health care in a decade. Well, the plan is also seen as a push to incentivize holdout states to expand Medicaid. Well, last month, Democratic Georgia um, Senators um, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, they led a group of state lawmakers who penned a letter to congressional leadership asking for the cuts to be eliminated. Georgia is one of the 12 states that would be effective. Reducing federal funds to hospitals and providers can be detrimental to their survival. And in the midst of a global pandemic, we should not be imposing additional financial constraints, the Democrat lawmakers wrote. While the Senate version of the Build Back Better Act is uh, expected to include notable changes from the House version, no big surprise there, moderates, including Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, have expressed concern about various elements of that bill. 
Well, in other developments, the president is facing a series of challenges amid the push to uh, pass the Build Back Better bill or act as it's referred to. A Biden senior advisor for migration is leaving the White House and the president's spending bill could double the costs of child care for middle class Americans. Representative Jayapal says CBO, the Congressional Budget Office scores, are outdated and don't count the well-being of the planet amid the spending bill backlash. Meanwhile, Senator Manchin has raised new inflation concerns as the Democrats race to pass the $1.7 trillion bill, or as the CBO put it, the 3 to $4 trillion bill. A CNN producer who once decried growing news stories of child abuse cases in an old tweet has himself been accused of child sex crimes. The producer accused of um, these crimes against minors once decried the growing number of stories. John Griffin has um, was charged by a grand jury in Vermont with three counts of using a facility of interstate commerce to attempt to entice minors to engage in unlawful activity. He's currently in custody and his arraignment is scheduled for uh, tomorrow. A senior producer for CNN's morning show, The New Day, was taken into custody following a federal indictment. In other developments, a former New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, has been ordered by the state's ethics board to forfeit the $5.1 million in profit next month from the memoir he published over the pandemic. In a near unanimous decision, a 12 to 1 vote, the New York Joint Commission on Public Ethics passed a resolution demanding that Cuomo return his earnings from the book. American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. Well, this comes a month after the panel rescinded its prior approval, giving a now disgraced governor permission to keep the book side hustle uh, while he was still serving as governor of New York, confronting multiple scandals simultaneously. Well, over the summer and into the fall, the New York Attorney General's office launched a probe into Cuomo's alleged abuse of state resources, including staff members, to draft and promote his book. Well, during that criminal investigation, the attorney general, uh, Letitia James, subpoenaed the ethics panel for information related to the book. Cuomo says that he will fight, or at least his attorney says he will fight that order. But he has been called upon to turn over $5.1 million in book profits to the state of New York. Well, progressives erupted over Elon Musk's selection as Time Magazine's Person of the Year, calling it an absolute disgrace. A New York Times editorial claims too many Americans are still paralyzed by coronavirus fear. Hmm, I wonder why. Politico called Vice President Harris a one-time political rock star. I'm not sure when that time was, but they went on to say it's not all her fault for her low approval numbers. President Biden will travel to Kentucky to survey the damage from the weekend's extreme weather. The president will travel on Wednesday to survey the damage following tornadoes and unseasonable extreme weather across the Midwest that left dozens dead. The White House said the president will travel to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, for a storm briefing on Wednesday and to Mayfield in Dawson Springs to survey storm damage. Those communities were virtually leveled. The president said Monday that he has made it clear to every governor that his administration will deploy whatever they need when they need it and will get it to them as rapidly as we can. Uh, That's what we're doing here in Kentucky. We're going to have to go beyond what is available to the federal government, he said, noting that if the administration can't provide it through a government agency, we'll do our best to find uh, private agencies to get help from churches, Red Cross, a whole range of institutions. Well, over the weekend, the president approved an emergency declaration providing federal funds to Kentucky and said he would deploy federal resources to the storm ravaged area. 
In other developments, a Kentucky candle factory survivor who lost her boyfriend in the tornado says an unidentified Superman saved her life. She was buried underneath a concrete wall. On the Amazon warehouse collapse in Illinois, police say all the missing people are now accounted for. An eyewitness to the deadly Kentucky tornado says the community has lost its history. And FEMA is in a life-saving, life-sustaining mode as they look for survivors. That will not continue for much longer, however. Well, telling the public to wait until 2097. Let me say that again, unless you think I you misunderstood. 2097. A lawsuit claims the FDA may not release all COVID-19 vaccine approval data for decades. Now, who in 2097, unless we're all still wearing masks, is going to care? We need that information now. The NFL is putting players on notice as they throw out the booster shot deadline. And a 7.3 undersea earthquake in Indonesia triggered a tsunami warning. A Georgia judge has set a sentencing date for the men convicted of murdering Ahmad Arbery. And the House January 6th panel has referred Mark Meadows, rather, for criminal prosecution. Mark Meadows is a sitting member of um, the House of Representatives. J.P. Morgan is in talks to uh, pay a $200 million fine for employees' uh, text messages. And Boy Scouts of America has secured $800 million from a Chubb insurer for sex abuse settlements. Organizers of the January 6th rally are suing Verizon to prevent their cell phone records being released. And Starbucks workers at two Boston locations have filed for union elections. Lithium prices are soaring due to the demand for electric vehicles and the scant supply of the same. President Biden misled as he claimed 900 U.S. citizens have been relocated from Afghanistan. Ed Morrissey points out uh, they keep attempting a sleight of hand by counting citizens rather than Americans. And they insist on counting those who want to leave with uh, whom they are in contact rather than just the estimated numbers of Americans left behind. Note well that a state cleverly claims credit for rescuing 900 Americans while claiming only to be in touch with fewer than a dozen U.S. citizens who want out. So how many are left? It appears to be around 14,000. Meanwhile, the economy under the Taliban is in shambles and growing worse by the day for people now under their rule. The U.S. Democracy Summit cut the feed after a map showing the Taiwan independence Any opinions expressed by individuals on this panel are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. Read a disclaimer that later appeared. The State Department told the outlet the situation was an honest mistake, saying it resulted from confusion over screen sharing. Later, despite the claim of an innocent mistake, unnamed sources told Reuters it was about the United States policy toward China and Taiwan and their fear that the situation could further inflame tensions with China. They also cut the news feed of the Taiwanese when they were talking about free speech. Another mistake. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office numbers exposing the real cost of the Build Back Better Act are fake. This isn't the first time that the administration has tried to diminish the importance of the Congressional Budget Office score on welfare expansion. In 2017, we were subjected to a slew of concerned columns uh, defending the honor of the CBO from Republican harassment. Suddenly, the CBO is fake again. Senator Marsha Blackburn says Biden's radical agenda will add three trillion dollars to the national debt. That's a fact. And Joe Biden and Jen Psaki are lying to the American people. Meanwhile, Katie Pavlich says Saki is calling the CBO score on Build Back Better, showing it adds $3 trillion to the deficit fake. 
Guy Benson says uh, it's uh, it's real and the initial dim manipulated score is, in fact, fake. Well, the Biden administration used the Kentucky tragedy to push their climate change agenda, as they always do. But following the criticism, Biden went from the dogmatic. We all know everything is more intense when the climate is warming to the more nuanced. We can't say with absolute certainty that it was because of climate change. Well, two years ago, environmental Bjorn Lomborg uh, showed the dramatic drop in violent tornadoes since 1950. But it doesn't really fit the narrative. California restored its indoor mask mandate just in time for Christmas. And Colorado's governor declared the pandemic over. Democrat Jared Polis is one of the few leaders in his party not pushing more mask mandates. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. But we'll be back after news and traffic. And we'll hear from Peter Wood on his book, Wrath, when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In addition to covering some of the day's news, we're also going to hear from Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars, and he's the author of Wrath America Enraged. Coming up with some explanation as to how we got to be so angry. I want to remind you that following this program every weekday, you can hear Saving America with Charlie Kirk right here on 93.9 KPDQ weekdays at six. Charlie Kirk is the founder and president of Turning Point USA. It's a national student movement dedicated to identifying, organizing and empowering young people to promote the principles of free markets and limited government. You can tune in to Saving America with Charlie Kirk weekdays at six right here on 93.9 KPDQ. While a teachers union leader is seeking to pull education events further left, NEA chief Becky Pringle is proud she kept schools closed and promises to continue battling parents as she is pretty cozy with the administration. Her big educational goal for your child's school, transform it into something it was never designed to be racially and socially just and equitable. That's a quote, by the way. Houston voters replaced two Democrats with two Republicans on the school board. The story notes that national politics look to have influenced voters as they rejected hot button issues like critical race theory and face mask mandates in Houston public schools. Both conservative candidates use the issue on the campaign trail. David Frum says hospitals should quietly serve the unvaccinated last. A two-tiered system. The Atlantic writer tweeted the startling statement on Sunday. Imagine if we treated all people that way, serving the overeaters last. People who get STDs last. People who work in dangerous occupations last. Hmm. Well, the military will not punish any officials for the drone attack killing seven Afghan children some weeks ago. In another example of the open borders fallout, a Texas mother and daughter were killed by an illegal migrant smuggler um, fleeing from the police. And the January 6th Inquisition voted to recommend contempt charges for Mark Meadows. President Biden says he's willing to lose the presidency over his disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal. And Facebook made a shocking admission about its fact-checked labels in a court filing. Well, Facebook is admitting what many of us have known to be true for some time. Its fact-checked labels are opinions rather than definitive renderings of the facts. I know you're as shocked as I am. Well, 74 are dead. More than 100 are still unaccounted for in the Kentucky tornado disaster. Factory workers were threatened with firing if they left before the tornado, employees say. Well, victims of USA Olympic team Dr. Larry Nasser 
are to be paid some $380 million in the settlement. Well, the U.S. military prides itself with being the most advanced fighting force in the world. The question now is, is it? Well, the Chinese could offer a compelling case to the contrary, at least when it comes to hypersonic missile technology. For example, China has already conducted two tests of its new nuclear-capable hypersonic glide missile, a weapon for which the U.S. has no parallel, let alone a defense. General John Hyten, retiring vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, explained that the test missile went around the world, dropped off a hypersonic glide vehicle that glided all the way back to China, impacting its test target. Hyten went on to say they uh, look like a first use weapon. That's what uh, those weapons look like to me. We'll add the punchline that the general has used his wise discretion not to deliver. That's because they are. Well, these weapons have no defensive use. They are purely offensive weapons designed for first strike capability and surprise. Additionally, unlike conventional ballistic missiles, which follow trajectories dictated solely by gravity, hypersonic glide weapons are designed to take advantage of plasma physics and aerodynamics to bounce off the Earth's atmosphere to maneuver while en route to a target, all at speeds exceeding one mile per second. Experts also believe China's nuclear arsenal will exceed 1,000 warheads by the end of this decade. Now, if these warheads are deliverable by hypersonic missile delivery capabilities, Russia likewise has recently touted, then this newly acquired capability by China poses an unprecedented threat to U.S. national security. The U.S. pioneered hypersonic technology beginning with the X-15 in the late 1960s. But its commitment to advancing the technology is flagged as well uh, for well over, I should say, a, a decade, even as adversaries like Russia and China have maintained Manhattan Project like zeal to develop hypersonic capabilities to destroy their enemies. Read us. Well, as Hyten, the general now retired, noted the evidence on these differing commitment levels can be observed by the fact that China has conducted hundreds of tests of hypersonic weapons over the past five years, while the U.S. has conducted only nine. For its part, the Biden administration has all but discounted the uh, 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 the uh, the demonstration by the Chinese and discontinued the U.S. hypersonic program, apparently to show Chinese President Xi Jinping we can beat China with one arm tied behind our back. Or something like that. Well, setting aside the grim humor, the seriousness of China's efforts to produce a fielded array of nuclear tipped hypersonic missiles capable of reaching any target on the planet within 45 minutes or less cannot be overstated. But it apparently gets worse. The immediate threat isn't so much that China would use its hypersonic nuclear tipped technologies on the U.S. homeland, but rather that it would use its hypersonic weapons conventionally in the South and East China seas to destroy U.S. carrier fleets deployed to defend Taiwan. Now, recently speaking at a Halifax International Security Forum, U.S. Space Force Vice Chief of Space Operations General David Thompson highlighted the revolutionary nature of this new threat, likening it to a magic snowball. He explained, if I'm throwing a snowball at you, the instant that snowball leaves my hand, you have a sense of whether or not it's going to hit you. But a hypersonic missile changes that game entirely, end quote. Well, not only are these weapons maneuverable, but because they can travel suborbitally, uh, their paths are even more unpredictable. He further elaborated, I'm going to throw the snowball. It's going to go around the world and it's going to come in and hit you in the back of the head. 
And so every launch, regardless of where it's headed, now has the potential that it could be a threat. End quote. Well, imagine, for example, China's initially launching a hypersonic glide weapon, ostensibly in a direction completely away from the United States carrier, only to destroy that carrier from an entirely different direction less than an hour later. Now, worse, because of the maneuverability of this glide weapon, its intended target could not be definitively determined until only moments before the impact. And at the speed of uh, these weapons uh, that it would impact, Warheads uh, wouldn't even be uh, needed for conventional strikes, removing complex warhead fusing issues from the equation. The energy transfer alone would be enough to take out an entire carrier. Well, the bottom line is that merely to declare that the U.S. must develop defenses to counter this new technology is to grossly underestimate the urgency of addressing that threat. And at this point, we seem to be grossly underestimating the level of that threat. Right. We need to take a break here. And when we return, we'll hear from Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars and author of Wrath, America Enraged. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I appreciated a column I read recently by David uh, Covell. He is the president of Intercessors for America, reminding us that despite all of the things we've talked about here today and the days before today, uh, the challenges we face, we need to remember the reason for the season. Now, the truth is we're not commanded in Scripture to celebrate the birth of Christ. But for those of us who know him and have walked with him, have experienced reconciliation with God through him, It's a reason to celebrate. And so we do so out of gratitude and love. Now, the culture has taken it up for lots of other reasons. But for those of us who know him, remembering the reason for the season in the midst of some of the challenges we face can be something of a challenge in and of itself. Well, Dave Cubble uh, wrote a column on this very thing and pointed out that there's a lot to be uh, a bah humbug about this Christmas season. And, you know, wouldn't take much to provide something of a laundry list. You've got the supply chain disruptions. They've limited gifts and other trappings that we are accustomed to this time of the year. Um, What can be found is more expensive thanks to swelling inflation, straining family budgets. And on top of all that, you've got vaccine mandates. They've cost some Americans their jobs, limiting their buying power this Christmas, not to mention just their ability to survive. Dr. Anthony Fauci and the CDC, they continue to spread their now too familiar doom and gloom about the threats of gathering with family and friends. Some people afraid to uh, to get together at all. And this Christmas, even the rights of uh, of the Christians for whom this holiday is sacred are being called into question and trampled upon. I mentioned a story earlier today on that very subject. Well, we've all watched for nearly two years, he writes, now as politicians and bureaucrats pushed the actual medical professionals out of the room and arrogantly assured the world that lockdowns, masked kids and forced mandates would save the world. From Governor Gavin Newsom, the Democrat from California, to former Governor Andrew Cuomo from New York, to Fauci and now President Biden, These politicians took on a savior complex, if you will, communicating that they were the ones who would single handedly save the lives of millions. Now, being prudent about what is uh, important for us to protect ourselves is one thing. But 
we're talking about quite another. Instead, nearly every uh, every response and policy they've instituted has brought consequences that made the cure more deadly than the disease, or at least more uncomfortable. Well, these self-appointed saviors devastated the economy, closed small businesses, and brought about the supply chain issues we're now seeing, all while declaring the government mandates from closing churches to vaccine mandates should take higher precedence than religious beliefs. Well, that's why this year, the well-worn advice to remember the reason for the season, well, it takes on a whole new meaning. Again, Dave Cubble writes, Usually we remind the faithful to avoid the crass commercialization of Christmas and prevent it from overwhelming the significance of the birth of Christ and time spent together with loved ones. All too often that reminder is ignored. But this year, the saying carries a much bigger significance because we're reminded every day of this fact. We remember the real reason for the season and that he gave us the freedom to follow him and believe in the hope and salvation he has for us and all mankind. We remember that our well-being comes from our creator and our allegiance belongs to him first and foremost, not any man or government. We remember that the Bible commends us to stand for truth in a culture of darkness, something we, well, we need to know now more than ever. And I imagine in the days ahead, that will still hold true pandemic or not. We remember our responsibility to our children, not to buy them the latest video games, but to spend time with them and ensure we instill God's values rather than the madness of the times. We remember those who have uh, we have lost this pandemic um, and remember those who are lonely because of whom they've lost. We remember those suffering in places like Afghanistan and our brothers and sisters trapped in Chinese concentration camps merely for their faith. Only one example of believers all over the globe who suffer greatly because they have chosen to follow Christ. We remember that he came for all of these reasons, to heal the sick, to release the captive, to minister to the poor and the widow. And then we put our remembrance into action. We pray fervently for our nation and communities. Do we pray fervently for our nation and our communities? We go to church, something that was not just a given over the last 20 months. We visit those who are hurting and infirm, something we haven't been free to do of late. We focus on what we can do for others during these days of economic hardship. And we give not just generously, but sacrificially, as the story of the widow's might in the Gospel of Mark shows. It's nothing to give of our abundance. It's everything to give when we have very little. And for some of us, we have very little. Well, that's the real spirit of Christmas. And this year, we have the ability to really make that happen. And what a challenge it is for us. It's easy to shake our fists, to roll our eyes, to wring our hands, thinking about the challenges we face in this particular time. It's unique uh, to us in this season of life. And yet God calls us to respond in the same way today that he calls us to respond in days when things are not quite so challenging. So that is uh, our call as we uh, consider how we can honor him during this season. I noted that uh, there is opposition to those who take the reason for the season seriously. And one story uh, that was brought to my attention had to do with wreaths across America. It was referred to as carpet bombing veteran cemeteries with Christian gang signs. That's how it was characterized. A group went to uh, cemeteries where veterans are buried and they placed Christmas wreaths on every Uh, grave every tombstone 
Well, the leader of a nonprofit that protects military members' religious freedoms said reeds laid on tombstones of uh, veterans whose families haven't consented are Christian gang signs. Is there hostility growing in our culture? We're not saying you can't place wreaths, but you cannot blanket it like that, said Military Religious Freedom Foundation President Mike Mikey Weinstein uh, in an interview. That's like carpet bombing, he said. That looks like it's a Christmas gang sign that you're creating territory that is a Christian territory. His organization issued a November 22nd statement attacking wreaths across America, which has placed wreaths at veteran cemeteries for nearly 30 years. On December 18th, the graves of all veterans in our country's 155 national cemeteries and numerous other locations where American veterans are buried will be indiscriminately decorated with Christmas wreaths by the organization Wreaths Across America, the statement read. The grave sites of Christians and non-Christians alike will be adorned with this hijacked from paganism symbol of Christianity, circular and made of evergreen to symbolize everlasting life through Jesus Christ, whether the families of the deceased veterans like it or not, it continued. But Reeves Across America Executive Director Karen Worcester uh, said in her interview that her organization isn't Christian or political. She said, uh, our view is that if you want to put a Christmas wreath on a veteran's grave, that's fine. But then you must first request that or you make sure that in this case, wreaths across America has absolute empirical uh, and impress, express rather approval to do it. Now, that was Weinstein and rather than the uh, wreaths across America director. Well, Worcester, she uh, said in her interview that wreaths across America has had a policy against laying wreaths at graves marked with a Jewish star of David since the group started in 1992. But she also said wreaths across America has never been asked not to place wreaths for veterans of other non-Christian faiths, such as Islam. She then added that they have never placed those wreaths unless asked by the families to do so. We live in a free country where there is freedom of religion, and we respect that, she said. Additionally, um, Military Religious Freedom Foundation's research director pointed out how Wreaths Across America purchases its wreaths from, for a nonprofit entity tied with the Worcester family. Well, according to their latest available tax return, the nonprofit uh, took nearly $25 million in donations in 2019 and then paid nearly $17 million of that to their for-profit wreath company to produce the wreaths. Worcester defended her nonprofit's finances. The wreaths have to be made, she said. That's what and for uh, uh, that's that. And for many longstanding years, there is a request for proposal process. Well, the bottom line is to refer to the process of placing these wreaths, which apparently are not um, placed on certain graves uh, in an effort not to offend, um, has been referred to as carpet bombing and Christian gang sign. It's a. a signal of the culture that we live in and the challenge we face in attempting to keep the reason for the season a centerpiece in our celebration this Christmas season. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for engineering and producing today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. And in the meantime, have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.